Amen. If there are any children who would like to go to our Stepping Stones, our worship program for kids, you're dismissed at this time. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at the very last verse of chapter 7, verse 53, and then continue through chapter 8, verse 11. John 7:53 through chapter 8 verse 11 please give your attention to God's word They went each to his own house but Jesus went to the mount of olives Early in the morning he came again to the temple All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I chose the title for this sermon. If you'll notice in your bulletin, I called it, Who Am I to Judge? And I chose that title before it actually became kind of a controversial phrase this past week. If you haven't heard... uh, Pope was in the midst of an interview, was asked his opinion about gay priests, and that was part of his response. Who am I to judge? Created a firestorm as people dissected that phrase and tried to decide what he meant by it. And that's not surprising because in this culture, we're taught, everybody is taught by the culture, by the media, that if you make any statement about homosexuality, you're always supposed to end it by saying, not that there's anything wrong with that. To the point where it's a cliche, it's a joke. But that is a judgment. That is a statement of judgment about the rightness or wrongness of homosexuality when you add that phrase at the end. The older phrase, more common phrase of who am I to judge is not that clear. What are you saying about a sin when you respond by saying, who am I to judge? I think part of the confusion is that we use that word judge in different ways. If you go to a dictionary to try to find a definition for the word or the verb to judge, you'll get, first of all, a formal meaning for the word, 
The judicial meaning, in other words, to judge is to pass sentence in a court of law. And then you'll find an informal meaning for the word to judge, which means to form an opinion about someone or something by carefully weighing the evidence. Obviously, in those two cases, there's nothing inherently wrong with judging. But then you go to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Judge not that you, not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so if judging is not inherently wrong, why would Jesus tell us not to do it? Why would he classify it as a sin in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, that's because there is a third meaning to the word, kind of an added meaning that you find in Scripture sometimes. When the Scripture talks about judging, it means, in the informal sense, to form an opinion about someone or something, but it's talking about the effect of sin on our ability to form opinions about something or someone. And so, to judge in the sinful sense... In the judgmental sense, when we talk about judgmentalism, it means to form an opinion in order to condemn others and exalt yourself. It's motivated in pride. And that's the sinful kind of judging. So, there is a proper way in which you can use that phrase, who am I to judge? And then there's an improper way to use it. But it's important that we understand these distinctions in the way that we use that word because it's crucial in understanding this interaction between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees here in John chapter 8. You'll see this as a classic entrapment. Maybe for the woman in the story, but certainly for Jesus. From what we find out from what it says here that the scribes and the Pharisees have somehow... And don't ask me how. They caught a woman in the act of adultery. That in and of itself sounds a little suspicious, that maybe she was set up in some way. But anyway, we don't know. They caught her in the act of adultery. They brought her, and there's Jesus standing in the temple teaching, and they break through the crowd. They cast this woman down in front of him, humiliated her, put it, making a public spectacle of her sin, And they say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that women caught in adultery ought to be stoned. They ought to be put to death. It's a capital offense. What do you say? They're asking Jesus to make a public pronouncement. They thought they had him in a sticky wicket. They thought that he was going to put himself in trouble no matter how he responded. It was a win-win situation for the scribes and Pharisees as they were seeking to bring Jesus down. It says there very explicitly, John says, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Should this woman be stoned to death? They thought they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. If Jesus said, as I'm sure they probably suspected, if, they, if Jesus said, no, have compassion on this woman, 
Don't stone her. Let her go. Then they could bring the charge against him before the Jews that he spoke against the law of Moses. But if he said, well, that's what the law of Moses says, go ahead and stone her, then they could bring a charge against him before the Romans because the Jews were not allowed to use capital punishment under Roman rule. And so they figured either way, they had a charge against him before the Jews or they had a charge against him before the Romans. Once again, as Jesus responds to this test, we see his divine wisdom. The kind of wisdom that was given to Solomon when he made these kinds of decisions where it seemed like a lose-lose situation for him. And in his response, not only does he put off his accusers and those who are seeking to destroy his ministry, but he also teaches us a lot about what our attitude should be towards those who are caught up in scandalous sin. Let's look at that this morning. How do we rightly judge sin to be evil and avoid sinfully judging the sinner? Before I get into this, I do have to step aside for a second and address the question. If you haven't looked into this before, I'm sure most of you notice, I think in the Pew Bible, this passage is bracketed. And you'll find a footnote at the bottom of the page that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this passage. And so I fear I better take a moment just to address that. Of course, we believe the scriptures clearly present themselves as the word of God. That the words of the apostles, as they're given in the New Testament, are perfect, without error. We can fully trust 100% the word of God. The original epistles and the gospels that were written by the apostles and their associates were totally without error, but there is a catch. We don't actually have the original epistles and the original gospels written by the apostles and their associates. Over the first few centuries, that word of God, as the writings of the apostles went out to the church and the Roman Empire and beyond, these words were copied and copied and copied and copied again. But interestingly, you know, as they were copied, obviously not the, the words themselves were inspired and were without error, but the copyists weren't inspired, and so sometimes small errors would creep into the copying process. But in the first few centuries, we, at this point, only have a few small fragments of those letters and epistles. Once you get to be about 300, 400 years after the time of Christ, then we have thousands upon thousands of copies. And so the question then becomes, how do we know what the originals said? If we don't have the original writings of Paul and John and Peter, how do we know what they said? Do we have reliable copies? Well, it's amazing, the agreement. It's a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit, not only to inspire these these texts, but also to preserve these texts through the centuries in that these copies have an amazing agreement and even the strictest critics of, these, of the process would say that it, it, it is absolutely amazing that no doctrine, no significant doctrine or practice of the church is called into question by any of the copyist errors that happened in the centuries after this, these words were originally given. Matter of fact, if you're troubled at all about the fact that we don't actually have the originals, there's a great illustration that R.C. Sproul uses. He talks about, he says, you know, there's a, there is a place called the National Institute of Standards. 
And in this place, we have the official standards of measurement to the, to the most precise degree we could possibly get them. What is an inch? What is a second? What is a minute? What is a quart? We have these measurements, and everything's measured by how they adhere to those standards in the National Institute of Standards. What if some terrorist were to blow that place up tomorrow? Does that mean we'd have no idea what an inch is or a yard is or a quart is? Well, of course not. We have so many copies of the standards that we would have extremely reliable you know, standards for measuring things. And that's really, R.C. Sproul uses that illustration to say that's what we have with the scriptures. But there is an added question here, and that's why, to get to the point of why this text is bracketed, the earliest copies, again, we only have a few fragments from the first few centuries of the church, the earliest copies of the Gospel of John, or the fragments of the Gospel, Gospel of John, don't contain this passage. By the time you get to, say, 350, 400 A.D., then you have lots of copies that include this passage. So then it raises the question, was this in the original? Did John really write this? Was this written by an apostle? Should this be included in Scripture? And it's a legitimate question. And there's two schools of thought. I would say the majority school of thought among scholars is that the earliest, even if you only have a small fragment of the text, that the earliest is obviously going to be the most accurate, the one that should be relied on the most. The other school of thought says no. The, the one that has the majority of witnesses, even if those are later witnesses, is more likely to be the true text. I tend to prefer the second school of thought because I believe that the Holy Spirit was in this process. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Gospel of John and the Holy Spirit ensured that we have the Gospel of John through those first few centuries. We didn't even have the, the New Testament canon in its complete form because the writings of the apostles were being spread out over the kingdom and, and it took challenges to those writings of the apostles for the church councils to stand up and say, no, these are the writings of the apostles. This is what the New Testament should be. It took 350 to 400 years to establish that. And it's at that point that we have many witnesses to this being a part of the Gospel of John. That tells me that those in authority, those who were the official copyists of the Word of God, who understood that they were transmitting the Word of God, saw this as being genuine and apostolic. And I'm going to believe a historian from 400 A.D. before I'll believe a revisionist historian from 20, you know, 20, 20 centuries later. So that's how I look at it. I believe this is intended to be in part of the original text. I think that's why it's been preserved in the original text. It's work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Let me move on. Back to the text. Jesus here shows us how to respond rightly to scandalous sin. How are we to rightly judge sin and sinners? Three things, as usual, I think he teaches us here. First of all, we must understand who alone has the right to judge. Who alone has the right to judge? Now, Jesus, when they start peppering him with this question, immediately he ignores them. And he stoops down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. But they get irritated with him. They see him as being disrespectful, I guess, and they, they demand that he answer his question. So he stands up and this is what he says. Let him who without, is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
When you first hear that, you don't hear the genius, the divine genius behind it. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He's actually responding to a question about the Old Testament law by quoting another part of the Old Testament law, which is if somebody is to be stoned to death, if capital punishment is the appropriate punishment to the crime, then it needs to be the witness and accuser who first throws the stone. Now, why is that? Why was that in the law? It was a protection. It was saying, if you're going to accuse somebody of something that's going to result in their life being taken, you had better be sure that you're right, and you better check your heart. You better check your motivation. You better be sure that this is honorable in the sight of God before you pick up that first stone and cast it against the offender. It was meant to be a gut check, a heart check, so that people wouldn't lightly make accusations, especially accusations of this gravity. And as you think about what Jesus is saying, let him who is without sin, now there's some debate about whether he's referring to this particular sin of adultery or whether he's referring to any kind of sin, be the first to cast the stone. But as we know the Sermon on the Mount, we know that either way, no one is without sin. Either way. But what he's really pointing to here, ultimately, is that there was only one person in this scenario who was qualified to cast the first stone. Jesus Christ himself was the only one without sin. None of the rest of them were qualified to put themselves on that ultimate throne of judgment and declare this woman guilty. He is the ultimate judge of all people, and when he judges, judges, he judges with perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and he will judge all people one day. Now when Jesus says this, he's not saying, he's not talking about judging in that first definition we use, the formal sense, because he's not saying that it's wrong to hear a case and render a verdict in a court of law or in a church court. He's not saying that. Otherwise, there would never be any judgments because nobody would be qualified to render a verdict. That's not what he's saying. Secondly, he's not, render, he's not talking about judging in that second sense, that informal sense of the word. He's obviously not saying never form an opinion about whether something's right or wrong or good or evil. That's obviously not what he's saying. The rest of Scripture is full of exhortations to form opinions about whether something's right or wrong or good or evil. He's obviously not saying that. What he's doing is he's pointing to the state of the heart of these accusers. He's saying, what's motivating you? What's driving you to bring this woman before me? And he's exposing their pride and their self-righteousness that's driving that zeal for justice and that desire to entrap Jesus himself. And isn't that what it is to judge wrongly anyway? The kind of sinful judging is really putting ourselves on the throne that only Jesus Christ is qualified to inhabit. To put ourselves on the throne, look down on other people, and condemn them in order to exalt ourselves. That's really what sinful judging is. And as much as God hates adultery, and He does hate adultery, and every other sexual perversion, He hates it more than you and I can even possibly imagine. 
The scriptures are very clear that he hates pride more. He hates self-righteousness more. He hates hypocrisy more. And so he can legitimately look at these accusers as they gather around this woman and say, who are you to judge? I'm the only one qualified. I am the true judge. Which brings us to the second principle for judging sin rightly. We must not only understand who alone has the right to judge sinners, we must understand who or what is the right godly motive for making judgments about sin and sinners. When Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, it should have raised a couple of questions in their minds. They should have asked themselves, am I really doing this for the sake of the glory of God? Am I really trying to protect and honor the glory of God by doing this? Secondly, am I, are we really doing this out of loving concern for this poor sinner? This woman? Is that what's driving this? That is to be the proper motive for judgment. Even if we talk about judgment in the formal sense of the word. Let's think about it in terms of the church courts. The leaders of the church have to form judgments and pronounce verdicts about sin in many cases. If you just turn to where Paul talks about that process, which we call church discipline, listen to what he says. I'm going to read to you. This is him addressing a sexual sin, a scandalous sexual sin in the church in Corinth. A man was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. Scandalous, but even, especially in the church, but even in the world. And this is how Paul responds, beginning in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is, a, there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So obviously Paul is saying, not only is he saying, you need to form an opinion biblical opinion about whether what this man is doing is right or wrong, you need to, in a formal sense, carry out church discipline against him and excommunicate him since he is unrepentant in that sin and has not been responding to exhortation. Then if you skip down to verse 4, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You hear that? According to the Presbyterian Church in America Book of Church Order, there are three purposes for church discipline. I'll quote it exactly. To uphold the glory of God, to uphold the purity of the church, and to reclaim or restore the disobedient sinner. That's the proper motive for judging. To uphold the glory of God, the holiness of God, to protect the purity of the church and to lovingly restore the sinner to his or her God and to obedience. And that's what was totally missing. When Jesus says, do not judge, he says, take the speck out of, take the log out of your own eye so you can see the speck in your brother's eye. It's out of concern for the disobedient, for the sinner that we are to make judgments about whether they, what they do is right or wrong. And the Pharisees have, through these chapters we've been studying together, the Pharisees have proved over and over that they cared much more for their man-made rules 
than the people that they were supposed to be caring for. They cared more about their Sabbath-keeping rules, which went well beyond Scripture, than they did about the man who was paralyzed for 38 years in chapter 5. They cared more about their rules and entrapping Jesus than they did about this adulterous woman here. They cared more about their rules about the temple than they cared about the man born blind in chapter 9, and we'll see in a few weeks. They cared more about their self-righteousness than they cared about this lost sinner. And it is a characteristic of pride and self-righteousness that we tend to care more about our traditions and man-made rules than we do about our brothers and sisters, especially those that are wandering. Think about that. It is a characteristic of self-righteousness and pride, like the scribes and Pharisees, when we care more about our man-made traditions and rules than we do about our brothers and sisters, especially those that are wandering and straying. And that kind of brings me to the question that I know I'm going to get if I don't address it here, so I'll take a moment to address this one. What was he writing on the ground anyway? It's curious to me that the scriptures include that little detail. It's one of those things where the scriptures include it, which signifies there must be something significant about it. But the scriptures give us no clue and no way of figuring out what he actually wrote. And it's actually been interesting this week. I've taken some extra time to read as many commentators and scholars and all the different... It's really fascinating to hear all the speculations about what he might have written on the ground while those men were all standing around him and that woman was lying on the ground. I think some good ideas. I heard some of the better ideas. Maybe he was just sequentially writing the Ten Commandments so that they might consider their own hearts. Maybe... He was just pausing for dramatic effect. (laughs) It's entirely possible. Maybe, one of my favorites was, one preacher said, maybe he was writing down the names of the Pharisees' girlfriends. (laughs) We just don't know. And I'm not going to try to give you an answer. But I I had actually a unique idea. I was surprised I didn't come across this in anything I read. But to me, as I'm thinking about the flow of the text and what Jesus is trying to teach... And I'm thinking about the fact that just a few verses earlier, we saw in the, earlier ch- in the chapter before, that he had just outed the Pharisees for seeking to murder him. Thought crossed my mind. What if Jesus knelt down on the ground and just drew a cross? Just a cross for them to look at, to consider, because they knew what their plans were. They knew what they wanted to bring about. And that's a good possibility to me, as good as any I heard, that Jesus was trying to communicate to them, check your own hearts. Check your own hearts. Which brings me to the last point. We must not only understand, if we're going to have a right attitude and be able to judge sin and sinners in a godly way, we must not only understand who alone has the right to judge sinners, we must not only understand who... Um, what is the right and godly motive for judging others, but we also must understand the relationship between God's judgment and God's grace. That is something that is unique to Christianity. It's unique because this is the God-revealed religion. This is the truth 
from God because this is the only thing that tells us how God can hate sin with a perfect, powerful, eternal, divine hatred that's beyond our comprehension and yet show grace to those of us who commit those sins. And understanding how those two things meet helps us to understand how we can judge sin rightly and yet love sinners. After all the self-righteous accusers drop their stones and slip away, verse 10 says that Jesus is left with a woman and he says to her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then most significantly, neither do I. The ultimate judge, the perfect judge, the only one qualified to judge her is standing before her. And I know she doesn't fully comprehend this yet. I hope she did someday. But he stands before her and says, I don't condemn you. That's what every sinner needs to hear. Is that the judge that you will stand before at the end of your life, at the end of history, you need to hear him say, I don't condemn you. We will all stand before his judgment throne. We will all give an account for every thought, word, and deed. But interestingly, remember back in chapter 3, he said that's not why he came 2,000 years ago. He made it very explicit. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came the first time to save. He will come again to get condemned sin, to destroy sin, to eternally punish sin. That day is coming. But He came the first time in order to save. And that's why this is about the cross. You see, when Jesus says, I don't condemn you, He's not just being a good and gentle rabbi with a forgiving spirit overlooking her sin. He's not just excusing her sin. He's not saying, oh, you must have had a bad background. Maybe you had, you know, a split household. Maybe you, you know, have had a really hard life. No. He hates her sin of adultery. You need to understand that in order to understand the story. He despises with deep hatred her sin of adultery. But he's able to look at her and say, I don't condemn you because he knew that he was about to go to the cross. He loved her with a perfect and unconditional love in spite of, not in spite of, alongside of his intense hatred for her sin. Not just the sin of adultery, but every sin that she'd ever committed. The Pharisees were trying to entrap Jesus by asking him, hey, are you for the law or are you for this sinner? And essentially what Jesus said was, yes. I am for the law, And I am for this sinner. Both are equally true. You cannot be 100% for law and justice and 100% for a, a depraved, disgusting sinner. You cannot be for both of those without the cross. Without the cross, the two don't meet. But in the cross we find out that this is not a false dichotomy. That it is a false dichotomy. That these things are not contrary The cross is the way that Christ brought a resolution for the full judgment and the full grace of God the Father. I'm going to read to you just a a familiar passage. Think of this passage in light of what Jesus said to this woman. 
Romans chapter 3. You know this verse well, these verses well. Romans 3, beginning in verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Only because of the cross can God be absolutely 100% just in His holiness and hate sin as He hates it and also be the justifier, the one who makes righteous, the one who puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Grace and justice together. That's why Paul goes on later in the book of Romans, over in chapter 8, chapter, one, or chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, Jesus looks at you today and say, says to you, I do not condemn you. And he will say it tomorrow, he'll say it next week, he'll say it ten years from now, and he will say it on the day of judgment when you stand before his throne, I do not condemn you. Why? Go to the end of the chapter. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All of our accusers have been driven away by Jesus Christ. They've all dropped their stones and walked away. Even Satan himself is driven away by the cross. No one is left to accuse us, even Christ himself, the one who has the right to judge us. But notice how this story ends. Having pardoned the woman, Jesus now calls her to holiness. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Being forgiven doesn't give you a license to go on and sin more. It frees you from the penalty of sin so that you might receive the power of Christ to overcome sin in your life. He saves us, He reconciles us to God, and then He sets about to make us holy like He is before God. And it's not the kind of superficial, pride-driven, self-righteous holiness that the Pharisees had. It's that kind of deep, humble, grace-based righteousness that's driven by thankfulness for grace for all that God has done for you through Jesus Christ. I want to just read to you, I was actually reading this in my devotion yesterday morning, I was struck by how this perspective is behind what Paul said to Titus about how to teach his church. Titus was a young pastor of a church. And listen to what Paul emphasizes how he's to teach his church to be righteous. Listen to how he puts it. Chapter 3 of Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow. That's a very high standard of behavior that Titus is to expect of the people in his church. But listen to what Paul says next. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Teach them to remember where they were brought from by the grace of the cross. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works." You see, good works flows out of an understanding of the cross. Flows out of the gospel. And the beauty of that is, is not only it is, a, is it a deep righteousness that goes to the very core of your being that's driven by humility and thankfulness, not pride and self-righteousness, but it is a kind of holiness that reflects the glory of God and it's the kind that, it, that enables you to love someone no matter how scandalous their sin to not look down your nose at them, to not point a finger at them in self-righteousness, but to love them, to come alongside of them and to show them what Christ has done in your life so that they might experience it too. When you encounter scandalous sin in your life, and you're going to encounter it this coming week, at least when you open your newspaper or turn on the news, but you're probably going to encounter it in your office, in your neighborhood, in your school. When you encounter scandalous sin, remember that this is the attitude. You are to rightly say, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? I'm not Jesus Christ. I'm not your judge. I'm not on the throne of judgment. I won't be standing there on the day when you stand before Him to give an account. I won't be there. I'll be right beside you, hopefully. Who am I to judge? Why am I judging you? I'm not judging you because I'm better than you. I'm not judging your sin, calling sin sinful because I feel I'm better than you or I've got this all figured out. I understand that there but for the grace of God go I. That any goodness or righteousness in my my life is an act of grace that God has instilled within me, that he's taught me, that he's imputed to my record because of what Christ did for me. And finally, it's because of the gospel that I understand that all of us have the power to do anything right, to, to be delivered from sin. Christ alone is the judge. My judgments must be motivated by love for God and love for other sinners like me, and that judgment and grace are satisfied in the cross, and that's the only place that they're satisfied. We must form opinions about other people's and their actions. We must call sin sinful. But we've got to repent of the judgmentalism that has characterized the church in the last generation. We've got to repent of judgmentalism. Exercise judgment under the authority of Christ, motivated by the gospel and love for the sinner. I've been, pretty much since I moved up here last year, I've been regularly visiting an inmate at a prison not too far away from here. And he's given me permission to share his testimony in any way it might help you as a congregation. He prays for you, and he feels in some ways a little bit a part of this congregation, even though he's not able to be here on Sundays. But as I've talked to him, and and understand, and, and he doesn't mind if I tell you, that the sin that landed him in prison was a scandalous sin. 
The kind of sin that the world would look, like, look at and, and just be aghast at what he had done. And he will tell me, he says to me every time I'm in there, he says, I hate being in here. And he really struggles with despair over how long term his confinement is going to be. But he says, I understand, as much as I hate being in here, I understand that God had to put me in here in order that he might show me Christ and that I might find the gospel and that I might be free from my sin. And this young man is growing, he's growing in doctrine, he's growing in understanding of scripture. I'm really thrilled with what's happening in his life. But I, was, I just tore my heart out a few days ago when I was talking to him and he said, you know, as I think about one day when I get out of here, he said, I just have to wonder, can any woman ever love me knowing what I did? Of course, I'm preparing this passage, the message on this passage, and I said to him, any woman who understands the gospel will love you far beyond anything you can understand. That's the hope for any of us. The gospel. That's what's got to drive our ministry to sinners. Not pride and self-righteousness. The gospel. It's rooted in a humble awareness that there, for the grace of God, go I no matter what sin is causing the scandal. Let's pray. Father, we now gather at your table. We long to be reminded of the body that was broken for our sin, the blood that was shed for our sin. Lord, we need to be renewed in your grace. Forgive us for the judgmentalism. Forgive us for the pride. Forgive us for the self-righteousness. Lord, may we be renewed in the love of the gospel as we gather at your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.